Welcome to the Sex Ed with DB podcast. Sex Ed with DB is an intersectional, feminist, Bay Area-based podcast for folks who want to hear real stories from underrepresented voices as we try to revolutionize the way we talk about sex. Just talk about sex every single day. I used to hump the shit out of everything. I think everybody does. I'm like, if you'd like me to start procreating tough shit, because I'm not gonna. You can't have education, you can't have contraception, but you can't have an abortion. We're still on the the shit end of, of the stick for a lot of medical interventions that would make our bodies function better. And now it's all queer and all messy and all bodies and really great and fantastic. Everyone gets a vibrator! I'm DB, aka Danielle Bezalow, and I'll be your host. In today's episode, we'll be discussing sex workers' experiences and the impacts of SESTA-FOSTA, the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, and the Fighting Online Sex Trafficking Act. Spoiler alert, these bills are not helpful to sex workers who are engaging in consensual sex work. Our guests today are Andre Shakti and Mia Little. Mia Little is an adult film performer and sex worker, leading sex education workshops at universities and online. Andre Shakti is a journalist, educator, performer, activist, and proud sex worker living in the SF Bay Area. San Francisco Pole and Dance is not just a pole dance studio. It's a feminist utopia and a space to celebrate feminist empowerment. Located at 8th and Folsom in San Francisco's Soma District, San Francisco Pole and Dance offers over 45 classes a week in pole dancing, aerial silks, aerial lira, gymnastics, handstands, and flexibility training. Here, you'll get the best in pole dance training along with the support of a community filled with bad bitches. Go to www.sfpolandance.com to sign up for a class. Use promo code SEXEDWITHDB to get 20% off your first purchase. Now, here I am with Mia. Mia, welcome to the podcast. How's it going for you today? It's going great. Thank you, Daniel, for having me. Yes, super stoked to hear your voice and hear all about who you are and what you do. So if you could uh, start by saying your name and a little bit about your background. Yeah, for sure. So I'm Mia Little. Um, she, her, hers, they, them pronouns. I am a genderqueer individual. I'm originally from New York. I live in sunny California now, which I'm ever so grateful for. And I work in adult film. I'm a sex worker. I also do cam work. I've also done some dom work um, outside of those two types of sex work. And I do a lot of sex education stuff. That's where we got connected. And that's what brings me here today. Amazing. Back to kind of like when you were growing up, um, Uh would you say your family was like, sex positive or like, do they know about your career? Are they surprised about it? If they do know, like what's your family reaction to it? Oh, they reacted very poorly, but I kind of expected that. So my upbringing is like, I'm a first generation Filipinx woman and, or like individual. And my parents are from the Philippines. They're very conservative religiously and culturally. And it was a very sex negative upbringing. And so I remember when I I like bolstered up the courage to ask my mom for birth control. Like I cornered her at a Sears where it was like very public. So she couldn't (laughs) make a scene. I was like, Oh, I'm horrible, but I really need this birth control. And I 
in my head at the time, that was like the only way I could have this conversation with my parent without having it shut down immediately, which it, it could have easily been at home. Um, right. It was really sex negative. I had an older brother and just from my view, it felt as if his socialization was less restricted than mine because I was um, the younger daughter in their eyes and the family. So I felt really restricted. Like rape culture was really perpetuated and victim blaming. It's like, don't you go out past sunset because the rapists are. I'm like, that's not how right. Like, yeah, nope. <laughs> that's, no, <laughs> that's wrong. That doesn't make sense. And also, like, it's not about like putting the blame on the victim. I'm not inviting anyone by wearing the clothes that I'm wearing. We're talking about the things right. I'm talking about. Like I knew that very young. And when I got into adult film, I knew that because it's never like people won't not know like it will get out being an adult film is like a very public form of sex work it's all over the internet and if they have access to the internet or if they know someone who has access to the internet it can mm -hmm. easily get out that someone's an adult film and so mm -hmm. i decided like I'd rather have it come from me than they find out from a random individual and like it's never gonna it was never gonna go well and it went mm -hmm. quite poorly and it, it's, it became very much like, we need to save you. Come back. I'm like, no, right. I'm fine. I'm like, I'm really happy with my life. Yeah. That makes total sense. And I'm sure, you know, there's a lot, there are a lot of people who, who grew up in very similar households of just kind of like, not only did we not talk about sex, but like, if we did, it was negative. And like, if you yes. were to, you know engage in any sort of sexual relations even as an adult like we don't want to hear about it we don't want to talk about it like it's, it's private, there it's very, very human yeah but you gotta hide it you know exactly um it's it's shameful it's a secret when that when for me i'm just like it's not a secret like put it all out there like literally right. like I'm, I'm creating content of this sort of stuff for people to then use um <laughs> so right it definitely is very difficult for my my family i think Totally. So just like in general, would you, at least for like yourself or with the people that you've met, like, would you say that people in the adult film industry and, um, like, like those same people who are doing adult films are also potentially sex workers or is it like a smaller percentage of those people or what, what would you say like the overlap of that in your experience has been? Well, I think there's a really big misunderstanding gap as to like what defines sex work and also like giving people the opportunity to self-identify because mm -hmm. like that is really essential for people's autonomy and how they parse out their identities um, and such. So like, if you look at the world health organization, like sex work can be trading sex or like sexual content um, or anything like sex related for mm -hmm. anything of value and so, like, I identify as a sex worker because that is what I'm doing. I'm selling my sexuality, literally sex acts with perhaps another performer for money for my work. And I also have done other forms of sex work. So I identify as that. I cannot, I'm, I'm just not going to speak for other individuals right. in, in the industry. Totally. But, like, I identify as a sex worker. If I were to just do adult film, yes, I would identify as a sex worker, but I would also understand the nuance of mm -hmm. that. Um, in that, like, this, what I'm doing in adult film is very different than escorting and has different vulnerabilities and different mm -hmm. contexts. Um, yeah. And all that. Yeah. 
what would you say is your, your favorite part of, of your job? The community. Absolutely. A hundred percent. The community. I love my whole family. They have really given me the tools to heal from a lot of like trauma outside of sex work and adult film in my like first serious relationship really and help me like get out of that. And they've taught me how to have like secure, healthy relationships. They gave me like language to talk about like consent and navigating that and understanding that. And also like my community really held me in my, my growth as like a feminist, as someone who's political, as someone who does advocacy work um, and wanting to give back to the community because of the Ho fam. You know, like these amazing people who have come before me um, have taught me so much about not only being an adult film performer and a sex worker, but just about being like a good supportive human being that gives back to their community and advocates for change and like pursues that change. That's amazing. In terms of like you being an adult film performer and also separately a sex educator, like what can you say about the idea that like a lot of folks who are accessing the internet and like seeing porn, like as their form of sex ed, like how as a sex educator, does that come up for you? Um, and maybe do you differentiate between the fact that porn is a form of entertainment, um, and not potentially not a form of sex education or, or the only form of sex education? Sure. Like you can definitely learn a lot from porn, but. This is what I say a lot in my streams. Like, you don't watch the Fast and the Furious to learn how to drive. <laughs> Why <laughs> would you do that? That is a great analogy. Why would you do that? Like, that's very unrealistic. These are professionals. It looks really fun, doesn't it? It looks really exciting and gets your blood rushing, doesn't it? Um, but the same thing with porn, you know? Like, what we're doing in, in content creation and pornography is, like, really athletic feats. It's to hit certain beats to create someone's vision, like say the director's or the, or the, um, the writer's vision of like what sex is in, in that portrayal and that fantasy that we're selling. That does not necessarily break down the nuances of like communication leading up to the act and um, the communication mm -hmm. about like consent and limits and like desire and the things that turn people on and all that like that isn't really seen and like the bts is still very driven toward entertainment if you're watched if you were to watch the bt the behind the scenes stuff of like mm -hmm. content creation it's very different people need to know like yeah it's really entertaining you can definitely learn different things and like you know like follow follow the rabbit hole so to speak of like oh this is a kinky thing that i've been introduced to by porn and so i'm gonna like learn about it and like pursue resources about it but it isn't the end-all be-all education there's so much more out there even though i know folks perhaps it's more accessible for someone to access pornography versus access comprehensive sex education. But right. folks should know that sex education is very different from pornography. Even though there are overlaps and there is educational pornography, you can't have this like blanket approach to pornography. And can you talk a little bit more about that conversation? Because like you said, like the behind the scenes stuff like isn't seen. Like obviously folks who are in scenes in pornography 
are talking about what they're going to do beforehand. They're talking about, like you said, consent and limits. Can you like walk us through one day of like shooting a scene and like what those conversations with everyone on set looks like and sounds like? Well, it's different from every single set because, again, there's so many different types of adult film creation because sometimes you literally have, like, a mom and pop shooting content for their clip store, and then sometimes you have this, like, huge production of, Mm -hmm. like, camera people, light people, sound people, directors, writers, like, the whole shebang. Um, And then you have, like, lots of different types of um, content creation in between. But I'll walk you through, like, a, like, BDSM shoot because I have one like coming up in a couple days with um, kink.com. So typically, like when I get in, I'll do the like the legal paper- paperwork saying like I am who I am, even though I'm using this name. Um, mm-hmm. And I've agreed to take on like these risks, um, like, you know, having like sex with another individual and like the federal paperwork, clarifying like my age and like all these little things. And then I get this really like um, thorough checklist of all the potential acts that can happen to me and that I can do to another individual, right? And it's Mm -hmm. like um, impact play. And it goes through like, I don't know, like spanking, flogging, cropping, slapping. And then it's like, yes, no, notes, you know? (laughs) And it like breaks it down, like all all the potential acts that can happen during a scene. And I can like go through it. And also like what I love about this, specific type of paperwork with this one company was that like it helped me understand that like I can do this in other arenas and transfer this sort of protocol just like for myself when I go to like a different set like if I go to like a very vanilla boy girl scene um, I can say like this is what I like this is what I don't like this is what's on the table this is what is totally not and I have I'm armed with language so this Mm -hmm. sort of paperwork this like thorough exhaustive list has given me the tool of language to really clarify mm-hmm. um, what I like and what I don't like and put to language um, my desires and like the things that are that I'm not into. My scene partner also has the same paperwork. We'll swap, sign off on each other's paperwork, that big, big list, the director will also, or like whomever crew that needs to sign off, sign off, so they know. Um, and even then, like, there's like an entrance interview where we go over, like, what are your safe words? Like, what is on the table? What's on the table? What are you looking forward to? And then we do like a wrap up, um, closing interview saying like, what went well? Were there any issues? Da, 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 da. And all that good stuff. Yeah. And that's yeah. like a, a somewhat typical day shooting like kinky porn for that one company. But again, like I've had experiences where it's just like, I have to do the due diligence of communicating like what my yeses and my nos are to another mm-hmm. individual. And like, I had to learn this. I didn't, I didn't always, I didn't always have these tools of like vocabulary and clarity um, when I first started out because like, it's, it's kind of like the wild west when you first get in, like you have to really pursue resources to like to learn um and just learn experientially switching gears because there's a lot of more conver- uh, questions i have for you yes but um <laughs> another misconception i feel like there is is that like people who do adult films like aren't you know getting checked or like their sti status is questionable and i think that that's like definitely a myth that we need to debunk. Um, so sure. I want to know like what kind of, um, sexual health care is involved in the sex work, um, and you know, that you do and 
that you've been around and what precautions do you yourself take to protect your own sexual health? In adult films, specifically in California, we have like a a two week testing、um, protocol. So you go and get tested at a very specific clinics or like labs. So we have talent testing and also cutting edge testing, and your information can be uploaded to like the PASS database. It's、um, hosted by the FSC, the Free Speech Coalition, and there you can、um, your status will be uploaded, and also you get like. Test back, and we pay out of pocket for a test because these tests are like perhaps like the most stringent.、Um, mm. Because like beyond like if you look at the CDC standards, our our testing protocols are way more stringent than the CDC recommendations.、Um, and it's it's great because then you are just on top of it, and you know, and you know every two weeks, like from like what you're exposed to as an adult film performer, and you're able to you know like if you need to get treated. That's treatable. You do that, and I really like having that knowledge and also being able to like look at other people's tests and know that they got tested at the same lab and see、uh-huh. where what how old their test is. Like I'm able to have all that information. Whereas like I've definitely dated civilians who don't know shit about their status. You know,、right. they think it's enough to test once a year. I'm like that. Like how how sexually active are you, dude? Or like <laughs> like come on. You gotta, you gotta be on it, and also like, do you have a copy of your test? Do you know what tests you're using? Because every time I get my test results back, I know exactly what type of test I'm,、mm-hmm. I'm taking for specific types of infection. And what about like the certain tests? So, like for example, like herpes, right? So, like you can't really test for herpes unless you have like a herpes sore. So, like, what about tests like that? I got this as like off of like WebMD and other. Other sources. So globally, 3.7 billion people under the age 50 have HSV1, which、mm-hmm. is、um, cold sores, like oral oral herpes, essentially, like a、right. kind of cold sores. I have、HSV1、like literally 50. I also yeah, have it, and people like yeah, so many people have it. You know,、yeah. there's a lot of stigma, and it lies like dormant in your in your nerve cells, and globally. Four hundred seventeen million people under the age of fifty have HSV two. That's eleven、mm-hmm. percent of the population have、um, what is considered general herpes. But the thing about HSV one and HSV two is that they can both present in both places. You know,、um, mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's、right. there's a lot, and so、um, there's a lot of like stigma around that. And it's very difficult to test for that.、Mm-hmm. Um, And like I feel like we are as a as the sex worker population or the adult film population,、um, we test for other infections that like are treatable that have like very different effects. For instance, if we're if we're talking about、um, not not to put STIs in different hierarchies, but me、mm-hmm. as an individual, I'd be more concerned with having. Like syphilis that goes untreated than having cold sores that I、mm-hmm. already have because syphilis, if it can like get into your brain, can cause a lot of damage and、mm-hmm. and really change your how you, how you live your life. Versus like if I would have like a cold sore on my face and a couple days will go away, I'll、mm-hmm. feel really uncomfortable, feel icky about myself,、um, and this is just my experience, but.、Um, They're different infection,、mm-hmm. um, right? Looking at that, 
I got diagnosed with uh, herpes one um, mm-hmm. like three years ago, and I just kept getting like the same kind of cold sore like on the roof of my mm-hmm. mouth, and I was just like, God, this fucking sucks, and like I hate it, and there's so much like weird stigma around it. And then mm-hmm. I looked it up and I was like, oh, wait a minute, like one out of every two people have this. <laughs> like, yes. first of all, like that's nuts that we're not just like normalizing that. It's like literally probably more common than like whatever, how many people have gotten strep throat or something like that. Mm-hmm. And like I take medicine every day. It's called a cyclovir and it's an antiviral mm-hmm. medication. And like, you know, mm-hmm. if I take it every day, it like prevents me from getting any sort of cold sore and like it's just like a normal thing it's a normal part of my routine um yeah so i think that's like important to say out loud of like this isn't like embarrassing like a lot of people have it and like Mm -hmm. it's it could have i could have gotten it you know from like somewhat sharing a cup with someone who had it or sharing a fork with someone who had it like it's really easily spread for sure or just like think of how many babies are kissed by their grandparents Yes. parents who get cold sores maybe once in a blue moon you know right. that's transmission there and so we have to really like talk about destigmatizing that because i think the thing with general herpes hsv2 is mm-hmm. that it's associated with sex and the right. language around sex and like and how how sex is held in the cultural consciousness like we're pretty self-negative here in the states we can say that Mm -hmm. i think (laughs) confidently i agree i agree um and so and even like how we talk about our status like dirty clean like those Mm -hmm. are problematic dichotomies that Mm -hmm. reinforce stigma and sex negativity yeah definitely language totally matters my final question um for you would be like What's one thing you would want to leave our our listeners with before you go um, regarding sex work and the porn industry? We all have a lot to unlearn and it takes work to do that. And this can be applied to how we view sex work and sexuality and adult film and many other things. But it takes active work to unlearn these toxic behaviors or problematic um, language and phrases and all that. And don't be afraid of doing that work and understand that like, we're going to fuck up. That's a very expected part of the process of growing as an individual, but it does take effort. So I hope y'all listening, take the initiative to put in that work to be a better ally and just like be better for yourselves. And now, let's get to it with Andre. Can you tell us a little bit about your background um, and how you identify? Totally. So I am a queer cisgender woman. Um, I identify as female, so she and her pronouns. I am originally from the East Coast, I'm a Jersey girl. Um, I came through Baltimore City, which is where I started getting experience in public health, doing a lot of um, HIV uh, harm reduction risk assessment education, uh, worked for Baltimore Needle Exchange for a little bit, 
and then decided that this was something that I wanted to do for a living. Yeah. Also running concurrently to all of that uh, was my work in the sex industry. So I started off as an exotic dancer or a stripper um, at 18, uh, very stereotypically to like pay for college kind of situation. Right. Realized that I loved it in the very same vein that like, I realized that I loved public health and sexual health education. And um, I call it kind of the sex work snowball effect, which is very different than snowballing. Um, if What's you happen to, oh, you'll have to Google that later. I can't okay. tell you that. <laughs> Consider that your continuing education. Okay. This. But uh, the sex worker snowball effect kind of refers to once you get in the industry, you kind of like feel like, okay, like I, I think I belong here. I think I want to explore more areas of it. Um, it's just the act of like coming in contact with so many diverse people through the sex industry. And by doing that, you get offered like all these different opportunities and you start to kind of experiment in different like genres of the industry. So I've worked as a fetish model, as a live webcam performer, as a professional submissive and dominant. I've worked in porn for six years now. I've done like burlesque and go-go dancing and fully nude stripping in New Orleans and like all kinds of crazy stuff. And now uh, I'm like tempered down a little bit because I've been in the industry for like 11 years, which even though I'm not 30 yet, makes me like a grandma hoe. <laughs> um, so I'm like easing into my elder years as a sex worker um, very successfully, I will say. And obviously still doing sexual health education, still doing pleasure education, still doing consent and trauma informed education and just loving every minute of it. So you've described yourself as a professional slut. How would you define that? What does that mean to you? Sure. Um, so slut is a reclaimed word, um, very much like the N-word in African-American communities and the word queer in LGBT communities, um, word that was once and still is, thanks 2018, um, used as a derogatory slur, not exclusively towards, but predominantly towards folks who are socialized female and or present as female. Um, in terms of their sexual agency. And it is used specifically as a slur to shame them for wanting to have sexual autonomy, wanting to have sexual agency, wanting to experience sexual desire and pursue that sexual desire on their own terms. And I think the scariest thing to the white men in power right now in our government is a woman who knows how much she's worth and who is willing to go out there and demand it. Mm. And so... Um, I don't feel as though slut is a term reserved for folks who are in the sex industry, which is why I specify as professional slut, because <laughs> I do get paid to be slutty, right. but you don't have to be a sex worker to be a slut. Um, you can proclaim yourself to be a slut being any gender, identity, sexual orientation, age, ability, profession, etc. If that title suits you, yeah, you know, there's been a lot of within the intersectional feminist movement we've been seeing since the election in 2016. There's been a lot of um, anti uh, street harassment um, education that's been like uh, coming forward. Slut Walk has been a pretty prominent event for a number of years now, right. um, headed by Amber Rose. So I'm proud to be a slut, yeah, and um, I'm proud to be an intellectual slut, and I'm proud to be a social justice oriented slut. And um, none of those things are, are mutually exclu exclusive for me. And I think like the whole concept, for me at least, of slut shaming, like I went to UC Berkeley here in the Bay for my mm -hmm. undergrad and I feel like I was really, really su surrounded by like 
the most brilliant people I'd ever met. Mm -hmm. And yet just this concept was so pervasive Mm -hmm. of slut shaming. Mm -hmm. And it was even among, you know, as I said, the most like aware, intelligent, social activist oriented people. Like it was still so cutting. What's like one tip you would have for our listeners of like what, what they can do to like actively end slut shaming? Totally. So um, before I answer that, I also want to make a quick note um, that might be entertaining for people to hear is that slut shaming is alive and well and thriving within the sex work Mm. industry, which is really interesting. We call it the hierarchy because human beings can't help but make hierarchies wherever we go, right? And so within the sex industry, it's referred to as the hierarchy because the whores are making the hierarchy. (laughs) And and it's really remarkable how people, um, you know, due to uh, socialization and internalized, um, you know, shame and internalized stigma and feeling like folks can't elevate themselves without putting somebody underneath them. So lots of times you hear this this really messed up rhetoric like, oh, well, um, you know, I'm a stripper, but at least I'm not like a dominatrix or like a webcam performer. Oh, wow. Or like, oh, well, I'm like a dominatrix, but at least I don't do porn. Or porn performers being like, well, I'm a porn performer, <laughs> but at least I'm not like an escort or a prostitute, oh, you know? God. And it's a Never lot of this ending. like, yeah, it's a lot of like folks with more privilege throwing folks with lesser privilege under the bus. And I mean, it's, it's a shame, but you see that in every like, micro community in every like marginalized community is just this like recycling of you know of hierarchy but to answer your question i feel like the most important thing that people can do particularly if they are self-proclaimed allies they want to be better allies um specifically of folks who are feminine presenting feminine identifying who are disproportionately the victims of street harassment catcalling slut shaming etc is to combat microaggressions in their everyday lives So lots of people make these microaggressive comments and microaggressive jokes about marginalized communities, whether we're talking about sex workers, whether we're talking about women, whether we're talking about LGBT people, Mm -hmm. um, because they assume that everyone around them, based on appearance generally, is the same kind of person, right? right? Is on the same page. Like, you get it. Exactly. Like, like, like you know, like, people like us. Like, right. you know, right? Yeah. And it's that generali- generalization mm-hmm. that we want to try and break. It's right. that assumption of all of this like-mindedness that we want to try and, like, throw a wrench in. But, I mean, so there's so many ways you can combat a microaggression. You can do it by just, like, quietly dissenting and being like, I don't really think that's that funny. Yeah, anyway, so combating yeah. microaggressions. Yeah. I love it. This yeah. is all good stuff. <laughs> but um, so you said that you started exotic dancing. That like got you started. But then like, how did you first start doing sex work? Like how, what was that experience like after doing stripping? So um, sex work is actually defined as the um, act of either selling overtly sexual services or selling the fantasy of sex. Okay. So strippers are sex workers. Gotcha. Um, lots of times people hear the word sex worker and they immediately think prostitute or escort. Mm-hmm. And while they make up a large percentage, we call them full service workers. Mm-hmm. While they make up a large percentage of the sex industry, there are so so many other facets of the sex industry that like thousands and thousands and thousands of people are working in that aren't full service work but are still a hundred percent sex work gotcha um so sex work could be uh and it's a self-definition some mm-hmm. people who do sex work particularly um survival sex workers folks who would not otherwise be doing sex work if they didn't need like food on the table a roof over their head money to feed a drug habit money to take care of kids etc lots of times survival sex workers won't identify as sex workers because 
it's not a job they feel empowered in. Right. Um, it's not like a political or social or cultural community that they feel a part of. It's like this thing they have to do to make to like make ends meet, right? Um, so if you ever meet someone who's in the sex industry and you're like, oh, you're a sex worker, and they're like, oh, I don't, don't identify that way, right. believe them, right? right? Um, but people can identify as sex workers, again, as strippers, as webcam performers, as like massage parlor, like handy job people, as, right. um, you know, as fetish models, as porn performers, um, gotcha. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. So yeah, when I got into stripping, it was not from a survival place. I definitely got into it um, very intentionally. I did a lot of research, like what club I wanted to audition at. Um, I went to a lot of strip clubs, poor me, and <laughs> talked to a lot of dancers and tipped them all very well for their time. But yeah, so I was 18 and like I like saw ads in, I was, uh, I went to college in Baltimore City and I remember seeing this ad in this uh, city paper for um, this club called The Crazy Russian. Uh, everything I'm about to tell you is true, by the way, so just hang on. So the Crazy Russian was a, unfortunately, it went under like two, two and a half years ago. I'm actually in the process of trying to buy it back. Oh, right. Um, it's a thing that I'm doing because I think that it would be like the ultimate like fairy tale ending if like the stripper bought this the strip club totally. where she first started dancing. Yes. But uh, it was off of this like desolate highway called Belaski Highway in between like motels and liquor stores and it was run by a crazy Russian couple <laughs> named Vladimir and Valeria and Valeria had this dream in Russia of opening like the next crazy horse and like every the women are going to be swinging from the rafters wearing like um, feather boas and doing acrobatics and everyone's drinking champagne and what she ended up with was a Pulaski Highway strip club called the Crazy Russian with like a bunch of poles on it and uh, I was there for a good three and a half years which like when you're in the strip club industry is a long time to stay at one place um, and that was definitely like the birth of my like sex worker identity and that's where I started you know, meeting other sex workers and like finding community and I started self-identifying as a sex worker and I started getting involved in the politics and the activism of it all. Um, I've always been a very athletic person and like when I was young, if you asked me what I wanted to do for a living, I would say it would be some combination of getting paid to work out because that's always been like my dream. So I was like, this is awesome. I get to do this like really athletic thing. Yeah. Uh, I'm very confident with my body. Um, I'm very extroverted and I love talking to people and I'm a great conversationalist. I love alcohol <laughs> I also love looking at beautiful women because hey my queer identity was also developing during that time so like my whole like I have a very very large desire pool for strippers and it's totally like from that entire right. situation and I get paid and I can like invite my friends out to the club and like they can party with me and like it just seemed like such a a perfect you know I make my own hours like right. I just seem like such a perfect um fit for me and my life. There's this idea I think that we get from like movies and from mm -hmm. porn and from this like, you know, there's a lot out there that may not be representative of what real dominatrixes totally. are experiencing. Totally. Um, or professional doms or however you identify. Mm -hmm. With pro-doming, um, and then dominatrix is generally used, or femdom, the abbreviation femdom, are generally used for uh, for women specifically, for okay. fem people. So as a pro-dom, um, regardless of gender, 
Um, it can look like many, many, many things. I think, like again, like the like you touched on earlier, the kind of cultural stereotype or archetype of a professional dominatrix right. is like this woman clad entirely in leather or latex, right. and she's like cat ears. Exactly. She's like whipping some man who's like strung up from the rafters, and he's <laughs> crying and calling her mommy. Right. You know? And like that's the, like the stereotype. And I will say that like I have sessions like that. Like that is <laughs> part of my right. work. Like some people. So it's not all fake. Like obviously that comes oh. from somewhere. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, all stereotypes are rooted in, like, a bit of truth, right? Right. And, like, there are certainly, that that is a very large contingent of what dominatrixes do. But I'll just give you an example. Like, some of my sessions, so most of what I do in my sessions are, like, three things that I'm, like, known for as a dominatrix. Because usually when you start off as a pro dom, you have to, you know, have certain branding and marketing behind you. And it behooves you to pick a few like niche markets and advertise those. Mm-hmm. The more general you advertise yourself, the less you stand out and like the less traffic you tend to get, right? Mm-hmm. So my like niche fetishes that I work with um, are strap on and prostate play. So I introduce a lot of cisgender men to their own prostates for the first time. And it's really fucking awesome. I also do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu and I operate heavily in a genre of domination called fetish wrestling, which literally means that like I choke out men for money. And it's <laughs> also really amazing, very cathartic, particularly in our current political times. <laughs> um, and then I also specialize in abduction and interrogation scenes. So the more intensive my scenes are with people, it's usually indicative of like the how much I know them. So, like, I will do really intensive scenes with uh, clients of mine who I've been seeing for years because right. we know each other really well. There's a certain you know level the of trust there. Exactly. <clears throat> However, if I have, like, a random, like, you know, message me on a Friday night being like, can you do, like, a heavy, like, electricity interrogation scene with me? I'm going to be like, hey, so, like, no, um, <laughs> I can't do that because I actually care about your safety. And um, I'm sure no one knows where you are when you go see women in strange hotel rooms. So um, let's maybe talk about this and talk about how we can either maybe have a phone call first to talk about like some boundaries and your experience with this, if any, and like what we can do safely. And or let's talk about how we can like mock this without actually like doing the things to you that you want done. But like, um, like kind of stage it, like, right. uh, and and stage it in a way that's still very convincing and still very like emotionally and psychologically intense, uh-huh. but maybe not putting you as at as in much danger. physical risk. Exactly. Okay. Um, I also don't want to be the dominatrix who like has to call nine one one on like right. one of her clients. Some of my sessions are like very intense. Like they right. involve a lot of like you know work ahead of time. Like I'm coming up. And with, is like, it an emotional labor labor for you? Like are you or by this point are you just like all right this is just like another scene or like do you get intense about it i mean i've never gotten like personally triggered from like i'm also not a survivor of sexual assault or trauma so um i don't really have like fortunately knock on wood i don't really have any like triggers around that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. um and i also am just like in love with what i do so for me one of my favorite things to reiterate to just anyone as like a sexual being is that like you need to give yourself permission to play Right. Like you need to give yourself permission to be playful because adults are socialized that at a certain age we are supposed to leave play behind in favor of work and adults need outlets to play. And kink and BDSM are just other outlets that many, many adults need permission to explore, even though 
they're exploring in a safe way, in a controlled environment mm. with a professional as an adult who's soberly consenting. So a lot of the work that I do as a pro-dom and as just a sex worker and a coach and an educator in general is just giving people that permission and telling them it's okay. Like these desires are okay. They're normal. They're normal. Me especially, like mm -hmm. before these interviews, like I in my mind had this really narrow idea of like what sex work was and now like I'm totally understanding mm -hmm. about how open it is. But I think like there's so little access to information to full service sex work mm -hmm. because it's illegal and because yep. of all of these things and like it's obviously still happening and whether or not... It's the oldest profession. Right. And yeah. like how do they keep their... Because they can't go right out and say that they do full service sex work to their employers, to the internet, to people around them who aren't in their private circle. So what do those people do in order to get their clients, in order to continue their profession if they're doing it because they want to? Can I get into a SESTA-FOSTA conversation yes, right now? Yes, yes. super timely. Yes. So for folks who are not aware, um, there is a bill that just recently passed the Senate um, called, the abbreviation is SESTA-FOSTA, S-E-S-T-A hyphen F-O-S-T-A. And basically what it does is it um, conflates in writing consensual adult sex work with non-consensual, often underage sex trafficking. Signed into law in April 2018, SESTA-FOSTA is a law that claims to fight sex trafficking by holding internet service providers liable for user-generated content that are seen as facilitating or supporting sex trafficking. So what the fuck does that mean? This means that conversations about sex work online are being censored by companies everywhere. The problem with this bill is that it conflates sex trafficking with consensual sex work performed by adults and cuts sex workers off from online platforms that they have used to keep themselves safe. For that reason, the law has drawn sharp criticism from sex workers, civil rights groups, and anti-trafficking organizations alike. And that is already having devastating consequences not just on sex workers. We have seen uh, Amazon removing a bunch of erotica and uh, sexual health and public health related uh, materials or burrowing them in the uh, materials they offer um, but don't allow people to rate so that they don't come up in search engines as often. Mm -hmm. um, we are seeing dating websites releasing updated terms of service about what language can be used in one's dating profile. We are seeing Craigslist uh, kind of yes. famously by this point. They took down their personal ads right. which have been around forever. Like, yeah. it's like Craigslist personal ads. That was like the infamous. original yeah. like, online dating. They were the original dating site. Uh, PayPal, uh, Venmo, they're all updating their terms of service. So like Whoa. this shit is going down right now. Oh God. It is bad. And because people... Because people didn't take the time, it's a combination of folks not taking the time to actually research the difference between sex trafficking and sex work. And these are people running our country. Exactly. Oh, the people running our country know the difference. The people running our country, they <laughs> well, are yeah. not fucking stupid. They are relying on the American public to, like, 
drink the Kool-Aid of like sex workers are bad, sex workers are victims, sex workers are criminals, sex workers are drug addicts, they, they're only in this work because they can't do anything else, they need our help, we need to save them, America needs to fly in and it's big Captain Save-A-Ho cape and like save all the sex workers <laughs> save a and like cape. you can help us and that's the rhetoric they use and like the people in our country are like, oh yeah, like I want to like, I want to save those poor sex workers, like yeah, I'm going to vote yes on this right. bill. That's not good. No. The past 10 minutes has been, like, you know, obviously really intense, and there are, like, a lot of things that Do you people... want me to tell you a story? A good one? Or like a, a fun, like, fun like a quick, fun, like... Yes, please. Like crazy story. I feel like that will, like, help lift us out of yeah, this. Yeah, maybe a little bit of this, depression. like, and everything yes. is terrible. <laughs> so, um, I used to work in a domination house, and imagine, like, MTV's real world, only everyone inside the house are, like, young women who are pro-doms. Um, so like we maintain the house, we take appointments, we take walk-ins, um, we all kind of like teach and coach and skill share with one another. Um, and it's like a really good like place for you to get your like dominatrix training wheels. So one day, um, this guy came in, old guy, little tiny speckles, uh, for glasses, snow white hair, carrying a bag of Tupperware containers. And he comes in and he's like, I don't have a preference on who I see in terms of looks. I just want a very specific scene. Turns out he's an entomologist. Um, Which so is he what? studies insects for a living. Okay. And what he wanted <laughs> was um, are you familiar with the, the old like Snidely Whiplash cartoons? You're pretty Kinda. young. But it's like the guy with the mustache yeah, who like yeah, ties yeah, yeah. girls to the, the railroad that, tracks. Yes, and, like, isn't that in um, Dudley Do, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah, totally. So, oh my gosh, congratulations. I've so, seen the Brendan Fraser one. I've okay, seen the yes. Brendan Fraser version of Dudley Do, right? Oh, Brendan Fraser. Um, <laughs> So uh, so he comes in and he's like, um, I want to do a switch scene, which means that he wants to be submissive for part of it, and then he wants to be dominant for the other part. And he's like, I want to do it with two women, and I would first like two women to tie me down, like snidely whiplash style, uh, fully naked, and pour insects all over my body. Live ones? Uh-huh. Ew! And, um, and then I want to switch roles and one of the girls volunteers to be tied down, like, you know, hands and feet, like, restrained, all, like, stretched out naked on their back, and, and myself and the other woman pour insects over her and, like, torture it's her. It's like Fear Factor. Yeah. And everyone in the Domination House was like, fuck this shit. <laughs> and myself and my friend Mona Wales, who went on to become, like, a brilliantly sadistic, like, defines herself as if I weren't doing this, I'd probably be a serial killer. Um, porn performer, dominatrix, porn director in mainstream uh, LA, you know, stuff, which is great. But um, her and I were like, oh, we're total weirdos. We're going to do this. And he had brought, he starts unpacking his little bag. What kinds of bugs? Uh, so he had giant hissing cockroaches. No! Um, he had giant millipedes. He had mealworms. He had crickets. The hissing cockroaches in the, in the millipedes were like the biggest bugs. And so, yeah, so we're here. Like, oh the hardest God. part of the scene, honestly, was like, number one, Mona, who like went down like took one for the team and was like the girl who went down and had the bug sport on her. She was super ticklish. So she was like, this isn't freaking me out at all, but like, oh my God, like I can't move. So she's like squirming around, freaking out. And the other hardest part was like keeping the bugs contained. So you like pour them, but then you'd be like, oh, that cricket 
sneaking off. So then you have to like <laughs> crawl and like get a cricket from underneath like the bondage bed and then like bring it back out again. And like, oh my God. And, like, so yeah, we had this amazing, it was just like so much glee. And this man was so happy because he found someone who would finally do this for him. And wow. at the end of the day, I like, he gave me um, a giant millipede as like a going away <laughs> present. And I also got paid. But like, I, t- I like rode it home on my bicycle and I like set up a little terrarium and I had that melody oh for like my, two years. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. Wow. So that see, is... like, it can just be like, it, like domination work as as any sex work can be just as performative as it is therapeutic, as it is fun, as it is cathartic, as it is just like completely silly and playful, and like that's why I love it. Our creator, host, and producer is me, Danielle Bezalel, a.k.a. DB. Our content editor is Katherine Cohen. Our graphic illustrator is Carissa Diaz. Our audio engineer is Katie McMurrin. Our social media lead is Lisa Fireman. And our fundraising coordinator is Carly Yoshida. Music by Joaquin Karud and the artist Buddha. Thank you to our featured voices and our listeners. Tune in next time.